Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us today for Live Dharma Sunday. Please note that if you have called in to listen to today's broadcast, that all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background <coughs> interference. If you're listening from any of our Bright Dawn sites, note that it is not necessary to call in. You may have to wait a second or two for the loading and buffering process to complete, but if there is still no audio, please refresh your page. For more information about Bright Dawn and its activities and links to our social media sites, please visit brightdawn.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the talk. Welcome, everyone, to Live Dharma Sunday for February 2nd, 2020. Koyo Kubose here. And so very, very glad you joined us today. Oh, boy. You know, I recently, uh, one of the main purposes of our religious education organization uh, that we started to carry on my father's work, who he was a pioneer in the Americanization of Buddhism, and uh, um, we we the family wanted to carry on his work, and the, a major part of that is to make sure that his books are always available. Uh, so we explicitly had that as one of our purposes and so we make sure that uh, they're available accessible and we do have the newsletter where we have our book list we list them on our website Uh, and we here at Bright Down Center in Central California we have the space at our center to store books so we could uh, stock up in inventory and things like this. So we keep track of uh, our inventory. And a few months ago, we saw that uh, American Buddhism, uh, we were running out of copies. Copies were getting low. And um, make sure that uh, we we had all the boxes accounted for and so forth. And um, I said, well, we better get some more. So we know some small printers in, uh, for some reason, there's quite a few small printers in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And some of them we've used uh, for many years now to do reruns and uh, reprints, you know. And, uh, of course, our, our runs are pretty small, maybe a 1,000 copies, and that will last us for, us, us for a while. Um, 
So I looked at the American Buddhism, and there are some uh, minor editing or changes in terms of uh, the cover, the back cover, or the fo- the inside part where um, uh, before uh, we were affiliated, of course, with the Buddhist Temple of Chicago or the American Buddhist Association or other organizations that my father started, and they might have been the sort of the sponsor or uh, one that uh, paid for the printing and distribution uh, plans. And so those change over the years. And, uh, and of course, now we're publishing through the Brightstone Center. So that kind of information, we have to update it and so forth. And then the, the Brighton Dojo, which consists of all the past Brighton lay ministers that have gone through our program, uh, they have also become involved. And to that extent, I say, yes, I just back off and let them uh, take care of whatever has to be done preparation-wise for preparing the manuscript for to putting in changes and so forth. And, and if one of them wants to change the, uh, the cover art, that's fine. You know, uh, we don't have to keep it exactly the same as it was. So this gets them involved and that's good. Um, so we're, so we're right there. And then I was asked, well, could you write a, a new forward for this new reprinting? I said, okay. So I did that recently and I, uh, you know, it takes me a while. I can't just sit down and bang it out. Got to give it some thought. You got to work with some uh, rough drafts, and then it has to have its own sort of pace, you know, and so forth. But finally, I did get it done and uh, and passed it along. Uh, but in writing that forward to American Buddhism book, uh, I touched on certain topics that I had to think about again. I had to revisit them. I had to, you know, uh, and this is, I think is very valuable okay, in one's own spiritual growth and the path and that we're, that I'm on and so forth. So uh, we used to teach a course in our curriculum for the Bright Dawn Lane Ministers about Buddhism in America. Like American Buddhism, for one thing I, I, I had to do is say, well, a word of clarification. The title American Buddhism uh, doesn't really uh, uh, mean that there is a certain type of Buddhism you know, or that it's a particular denomination called American Buddhism. But really, American Buddhism is just shorthand for Buddhism in America. That's how I interpret it. Okay. So we're not saying that there is something uniquely, uh, a particular approach that's called American Buddhism. But in general, in the overall, yeah, there, whenever um, talk about a brief history of, of uh, spread of Buddhism from its birthplace in uh, you know, India uh, and uh, wherever it went, okay, went in two directions, one of two directions, went south to all the Southeast Asian countries, Cambodia, Laos, 
uh, and Sri Lanka and so forth. And they went to the northern route, Korea, Japan, and they both go to Europe and come to the United States. Um, and whatever country it goes to, it becomes uniquely that kind of a Buddhism for that culture. Okay? Uh, religion is a, is, a, is an alive thing, <laughs> you know, and you can't take something, well, like Buddhism is 20, over 2,500 years old. Okay? And it's a very interesting thing that the core teachings, the basic foundation, you know, of the teachings is the same. That doesn't change. That's what the what the Buddha taught. But how it's taught, how it's expressed, differs according to the country, the culture, or, the, or where it is. And this makes sense, too. Okay? So, uh, Korean Buddhism is different from Indian Buddhism. Okay? Chinese Buddhism is different from Korean Buddhism. Japanese Buddhism is different from Chinese Buddhism. And Buddhism in America has its own particular style or manner of expression. Uh, uh, and that, that's an uh, uh, important thing. Okay? Uh, and I would say that for individuals, okay, that's talking about how a religion adapts okay, and changes. But that's the same for individuals. Um, uh, every individual has to walk on their own path. And just because, and you could learn from other paths, but as you walk, as you live your own life, it's uniquely your own life. Okay, even though there's a lot of similarities across individuals, okay, every individual has their own particular, uniquely idiosyncratic, you know, certain ways that make it special for that individual, and that should be honored, encouraged, and and uh, uh, that's that's what you might call freedom within a religion. I talked about three kinds of freedom. You know, in America, uh, it has been noted by sociologists or philosophers, they say, America's a great experiment, you know? And, and uh, what is the American experience? <laughs> okay. Uh, a place of uh, encouragement of diversity. Huh? People from, you know, we're all immigrants, we're all minorities in some kind of way. And we're not a melting pot. Some point, people point out, I don't know if it's a big deal or not, but they say, well, America's a melting pot. All these people, immigrants from different countries, they came. Yeah. But also some people said, well, uh, it's more like a salad bowl where each ingredient add something, but it retains its own particular flavor or nature. Lettuce is still lettuce, and tomato is still tomato. Okay, So it's not like a stew in which they all kind of uh, meld together. Okay, In this way, we, we appreciate the different subcultures, or whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, uh, and of course, as citizens or our nationality, all Americans. Okay. But we all came from someplace. All have, you know, and this is a, a 
sometimes this is a, a well complex social issue could be in terms of immigration in terms of well you know uh if you come here you should learn english or if you do you know how much do we cater for to this group or that group or take care of the native americans or take or you know uh have affirmative action or this and that so it, it spawns a big thing and so just like that ethnicity or religiosity okay america's a great experiment okay and uh, it's a beautiful thing okay it's kind of messy sometimes and we don't know what kind of labels to use um labels are an interesting phenomenon in themselves okay what we call people what kind of words do we use okay and the words we use linguistic relativity theory was is that the kind of language that you grow up with the nature of that language determines the nature of your experience okay influences maybe maybe it's not so you know strict causation okay specifically but so if a language has a lot of um for example uh they say that the hopi language native american language has no past tense uh, or no you know no past or present but more everything's expressed in the now how would that make a person's life experiences when they grow up in that kind of language how about if your language has a lot of sad words in it preponderance or vice versa there's a lot of uh, positive emotional words you know adjectives and so forth just relatively speaking in terms of the frequency of occurrence in the language might that not create sort of a you know interact with the nature of the culture of how that country and and how it affects its institutions and and its citizens and that's a you know a lot of broad topics okay so you know they say something i remember one nice example was uh you have one occurrence you visit a friend and they have a dog large dog and the dog is excited jumping around now you have the same reality the occurrence of the dog greeting you and the owner might say oh my dog is spirited the visitor might say this this dog is kind of wild and somebody that doesn't like dogs that's watching said that dog is vicious okay spirited wild vicious that's the label right seeing the same thing okay this is a tremendous insight into human humanness <laughs> how how we live life yeah that's how we see reality kind of like a roshamon type of thing okay uh so when we see how buddhism evolves differently and how we take it in individually too in terms of our our, our spiritual growth um i remember uh, 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 one time 
I went to a, this was a Buddhist Catholic retreat held at Sarah Center, which is around uh, a little bit north of Los Angeles and around Malibu. There was a, a Catholic uh, retreat center called Sarah Center, and that was the venue. Um, and they organized this retreat for about 30, 30, 40 people and from different dioceses, Chicago diocese. So one Catholic priest and one Buddhist minister from each of these different places across the country, okay, were so, were, were invited. So uh, Father Luzak and I came from Chicago, and there were other pairs of Buddhist and Catholic clergy there, okay. Um, and it was a weekend retreat. And Friday night is the social mixer. And uh, interestingly, you had your, you had a name tag with your name on it, but there was no institutional affiliation on that name tag. Um, so you, you when you were talking to people, you didn't know what religion they, <laughs> you know, because there are Caucasian Buddhists and there are Asian. Catholics, and they're present in this gathering, so you don't know who the label. Okay? And it surprised me that that kind of bothered me. I wanted to know who I was talking to, huh? and and I and and that bothered me that 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 I felt that way. I said, man, you know. Uh, how come I can't just talk to this person as an individual human being? Okay. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to know the, the person's background or who you're talking to so that you could relate to them in certain kind of ways. Okay. But there are other subtle things if you look, dig deeper into your own, you know, psyche, so to speak. Okay. Um, and that was, a, so that was interesting feedback for me. Okay in terms of names, labels, and uh, one's own values. Huh? And uh, so anyway, I was also thinking about uh, the teachings of water in terms of water being so flexible. And, you know, you can put it into a cup. It has that shape. You can put it into a, a pan. It takes that shape. Or, you know, whatever container it's water is put in, it it is flexible and it takes that shape, and yet water is still always water. And a lot of uh, uh, teachings have used the topic of water to to uh, illustrate a lot of different teachings, you know. And uh, so Buddhism is sometimes like water. Okay, where it goes, with the container it's in, the culture it's in, the country it moves to. Okay, and that holds for individuals too. Of this within the same religion, you got freedom of religion, of course, the diversity. You got freedom from religion, as the atheists would remind us. Don't forget about that. Okay, freedom of freedom from, and then freedom within a religion, and that's an interesting topic because I think Buddhism is a is a good example of uh, encouraging freedom within the religion. That is where you don't think that 
oh, boy, you better toe the line or, you know, very strict dogmas, okay? How much uh, does a religion tolerate or encourage diversity among their own members? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good uh, topics about this when we're thinking about Buddhism in America. Well, okay, I want to introduce Ken Kenyo. Uh, last Sunday on Live Dharma Sunday, he, uh, uh, it was part one, okay, is when he uh, had his uh, Dharma glimpse. It was a long one, and Adrian split it into two. So he talked uh, part one last week, and Ken Kenyo, he was originally from uh, Grand Junction, Colorado area, and he's been in South America for uh, recent years. He was part of our LM7 group. And we're going to talk here from Ken Kenyo, part two. Now about compassion. So where does compassion fit in to being response-able? Am I also responsible for others' lives? Several times throughout the week, I am asked for a handout. Sometimes I give, and sometimes I don't. It all depends upon various factors of the situation. Some factors include my own safety and my estimation of the truthfulness of the individual asking for help and their willingness to resolve their predicament. When I do give, am I behaving in a compassionate manner with respect to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path? I believe that handouts only offer temporary short-term help. They lack true compassion because I have not helped that individual become responsible for their own lives. They don't change the situation and the cycle of suffering for that person continues. I believe that if I really wish my compassionate act to reflect the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, then something else is required. I think of the saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. True compassion is not only helping someone in the short term, but also in the long term as well. I think of another question regarding compassion. How does karma fit into the picture of compassion? Karma is a necessary motivator for us all to recognize that something is wrong and needs to be changed. Often it is accompanied with suffering. How many times have I been motivated into action because of suffering? Do I suppose that without this motivation of pain, I would seek to improve my situation? Karma naturally exists as a result of the decisions I make. It is both an indicator and motivator for the need to change. How about the purpose of karma when it concerns someone else? Do I suppose that my knowledge and skill is sufficient to understand their situation? and that my attempt will help them along their path to enlightenment? I believe that in some cases they may be better off being left to experience their own karma so that they might learn and grow. When I was young, I was cautioned not to help the small chick break free of the egg while in the hatching process. I was told that any help I might give could be deadly to the chick. The chick needed to struggle its own way out of the egg in order to get strong enough to survive. Sometimes the ego is mistaken when it determines the help it needs to give someone else. In some cases, the result of such thinking leads to disaster, not help. My help can actually reinforce the cycle of suffering of someone 
that I intend to help. As I researched various sources to understand compassion as it related to others, the suggestion of working on our own selves was given as an honorable practice to employ as we think about others' suffering. Why? By working on our own enlightenment, the process of personal improvement helps us to better understand what is required to help others. Of course, we can be empathetic to others' suffering, but we must employ skillful means should we desire to alleviate the suffering of others. Often, this decision must comprehend more than initial impressions of a situation. Mahatma Gandhi counseled us to be the change we wish to see in the world. In other words, not to attempt to change others. I've watched the suffering of migrants fleeing from Venezuela. Venezuela's economic system, when times were good, consisted of many governmental supplements. Here where I live, some migrants want to live the same life of handouts that used to exist in their own country. They look to their host country to continue to support them as they had in their own country without having financially contributed to their host country's economy. Where does the money come from, especially when their host country also struggles for financial survival? One town closed its hospital because it did not have the financial resources to support an economically non-contributing population of migrants. Was this uncompassionate? It's easy to speculate about compassion and how we should help everyone, especially when it doesn't concern our own money, but it isn't realistic. There is no money to support the thousands of people that have come looking for a better life. Unrealistic theory or professions of compassion clash with basic economics, and economics wins the argument. Help cannot be demanded when there is no help left to give. This is where I believe that the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path with its radical responsibility become even more valuable as a guide. We are all radically responsible for our lives and the situations we experience. Suffering motivates us to look within and to discover the reasons for our suffering and to work to eliminate them. When we search for the cause of suffering and take the necessary steps to remove that suffering, we are in a much more enlightened position because of the experience. I conclude my Dharma talk with the following thought. At one time at the Tushita Meditation Center in Dharamsala, India, people in a meditation course decided to collect money for the beggars in town after they heard the benefits of generosity. When looking around town the next day to hand out the money, only one beggar could be found in the streets. The generous people then decided to give this one beggar all the money. A couple of days later, the beggar was found dead in the street. He had drunk himself to death with all the money. Was the act of the Tushita Meditation Center a compassionate one? Did it respect the law of karma and suffering that is merited in one's life? How did their actions support the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path? Gosho. <laughs> That's a nice way to <laughs> challenge us. Uh, yes, things are complex, not as simple as you might think. Huh? And that kind of, uh, well, I won't call it chaos, but you know the whole the, the topic of control, causation. Uh, when it's personal, when it's you know your own life, 
um, I think though it we should delve into that aspect about our values and uh, practical concerns about that um, because there's a, a what I would call a accept slash change paradox okay. accept slash change yeah this means that the um, and paradox because on the one hand you might say oh Oh, the teachings say how to accept things, okay? And that that's a, could be a good spiritual virtue, being able to accept, okay? And then on the other side, maybe the same coin, is change. So uh, change, it does happen. How much can, input can a person put into that, or can he change another person's life or their own, okay? And how does that, uh, in, how do those two things interact? Because they look like opposites. That's why we call it a paradox. Because if you're always striving to see how you could, say, you know, be involved and improve things individually, society, whatever, huh? then where does the acceptance come in, the serenity to, and that's what we see in the serenity prayer, okay? Courage to change the things that I can, okay, and serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, there's a reason for the popularity of that of that phrasing there, and um, how do we, as individuals, part of our own spiritual path, uh, relate to compassion, empathy, this accept change paradox? in terms of how we want to live. Huh? And sometimes uh, in the glimpse, the word radical was used several times, and I kind of like that word, radical, uh, because it says something that's beyond the usual dualism, the simplistic dualism of accept, change, good, bad, superior, inferior, success, failure. You know, when we had that hyphen in between those two dichotomous opposites well uh, sometimes when we say radical uh, something that goes beyond the simplistic dichotomy of the dualism of whatever we're talking about so it's instead of acceptance being the usual connotation of well you can't do anything about it you have to take it you know it's kind of a resignation Oh, maybe uh, you could call it a defeat in a way, okay? A surrender. Uh, uh, and or if you say radical acceptance means that that term, that label, that word acceptance, uh, we should always challenge our self-talk, our thinking, okay? Because we may be trapped in a certain stagnant, way in which we we want to break out of how we're looking at things, how we're thinking about things, the words we use, okay? Because when it's to our detriment and we, and we have some self-victimization about it, okay? And uh, so we can accept things without it being the opposite of changing things, okay? 
and uh, this is where like self and other self hyphen other now clearly this kind of logic is helpful in problem solving living life and so forth but at the same time the strength is the weakness okay the safety is the danger because things change person changes okay and we have to realize that there's a dynamic nature or flow and if we don't flow with that and we we get to succumb to our, our human ego of wanting to control things and say okay i figured that out yeah i got that part now okay you know uh is it okay to in a sense be falling all the time oh i want some solid ground on my feet this is the, this is the values that i'm going to live by and that certainly sounds good but what if you victimize yourself by over uh, overdoing it in ways that do victimize yourself okay and how you see things and when is it time to change okay without necessarily giving up some core things just how it's manifested so what does it accept change how does that play out that paradox play out that's that's the crux of uh, religion spiritual growth i think mm -hmm. and uh you might think about a some saintly monk or something it looks like he is very calm and he, and he he's pretty accepting of all kind of conditions okay you might think hey that's not that's not necessarily the kind of life i want to lead i want to be socially active and you know engaged in something like that yeah? uh but if you if you look deeper than that, you know, maybe the calm monk, he's a very active, dynamic innovator of a lot of things. Okay? And your own perception and the label of, oh, you know, calm, accepting, serene, had its own connotations for you. So, so we always have to be challenging ourselves, and that's okay. If we're if we're not on solid ground, but we're falling, and and fall, fall gracefully, fall wisely, <laughs> you know. Uh, this is what I might say: radical, whatever, radical acceptance. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, we don't necessarily have to feel that we're helping others in terms of compassion, because sometimes we can't have. We think we're helping, but we may be making uh, things worse. Well, you know, and I remember when at one uh, retreat, speaker said that to her, Buddhist compassion, you just uh, empathize with the other person, and sometimes you just hold hands and you cry together. Okay, uh, cry together. It's crying is the passion part, the emotion, the feelings, strong feelings, strong empathy. And the calm is together, community, communal, calm, passion. So uh, you suffer together. Uh, you're never going to, uh, if you think you're going to end suffering, why are you going to set yourself up for failure, right? Because that's the basic <laughs> first of the noble truth okay dukkha okay the nature of life 
And uh, so some people, when they say, oh, oh, I, I, you know, they're, they're really uh, devoted, but they said, oh, I got angry the other day. Some driver cut me off and I got angry and cussed them out and I failed. I mean, you know, <laughs> they feel bad about that. I mean, is the is the goal to shut off all our feelings, even the so-called negative ones of anger or frustration, okay? or is it how to handle them is where the attention and energy should go to? You know, how do you? Fire could be a very dangerous thing, but of course, fire is a tremendous discovery, you know, in, in the human history. Huh? Uh, so if we, the kind of label we put on things, reality is dynamic and it flows and we better flow with it. (laughs) Well, that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time. Hey, keep going and you have a beautiful day.